Hello, my friends, young and old, little and big, heroes and heroines, and welcome to this episode of Finnerin's Wake for kids. The stories here told stand at the very heart of our culture, a culture to whose ancient rhythm and musical pulse each and every one of our souls is tuned. These stories vibrate in our bones, course through our veins, and resonate and dance all around us. The following story, about which I'm very excited to tell you, is one you'll not soon forget. It's the story of Cadmus. It features a distraught king whose noble son, Prince Cadmus, is tasked with finding and recovering Europa, his stolen sister. His failure to do so, and his consequent exile from the realm. His visit to the Oracle of Delphi, and his founding of a new city, Thebes. The monster by whom that city was menaced, against whom our great hero waged a legendary fight. The warriors who sprang from the dragon's teeth, who proceeded to kill one another in a civil war. We begin this episode where, in our last, we left off. If that's an episode to which you've not yet listened, I urge you, pause this episode right where you are and go back to it. It tells the marvelous tale of Jupiter and Europa, the beautiful princess and the almighty god by whom the innocent girl was befriended, tricked, and, how shall I say, rather flagrantly seized. If you've already listened to it, tell me, do you remember what happened to our poor friend Europa? What was the fate of the beautiful daughter of the King of Tyre, whom Zeus, in broad daylight under the guise of a bull, abducted or stole away? Well, do you remember... Let me refresh your memory, if only briefly. Jupiter, who also goes by Jove or Zeus, noticed, out of the corner of his eye, a beautiful young princess by the name of Europa. He was, at the time, seated high aloft on his kingly throne in Mount Olympus, scanning, as he occasionally did, all the curious and various happenings like soccer games, carnivals, bake sales, and bluegrass concerts, to which Earth is host. As he gazed upon our peculiar planet, he saw Europa, the frolicsome girl, playing with her friends along the seashore. <laughs> what fun it is to play at the beach. It's one of my favorite things to do this time of year. In order to impress and befriend Europa, Zeus descended or lowered himself down to earth and disguised himself as a magnificent white bull. 
Europa, beguiled or charmed by the handsomeness, the playfulness, and the incalculable strength of this extraordinary bull, returned his friendship. When she felt comfortable enough to do so, she climbed up and mounted his huge back, across which she was able not only to stretch her legs, but recline her entire body. Once Europa was settled on his back, Jove, in the form of a bull, began to walk toward the ocean. No sooner had he waded through the low waves on the shore than he was paddling in the huge blue bulk of the wide open sea. From the ancient city of Tyre, which is located on the eastern fringe of the Mediterranean, he swam westward, landing, ultimately, on the distant island of Crete. Upon learning of her absence, the king of Tyre, Agenor, Europa's father, was thoroughly distraught. He was beside himself, inconsolable, upset, worried, and confused. Indeed, by his daughter's sudden disappearance, for which no one in the court could provide him with an explanation, he was not just confused, but utterly baffled. Wouldn't you feel the same way if you were to lose something of great value and importance without any hint as to where it might be? Where, oh, where is my precious girl, Europa? he cried, to which none of his attendants in the royal hall was able to offer an answer. Everyone just stood there, silently, listening to the words of the anguished king. Of all my children, of whom I have five, she is far and away my favorite. Her musical voice, a sweet symphony of sound, puts to shame the nightingale's song. Her long brown hair, through which the perfumed eastern wind rushes each morning to flow, is the fairest and most elegant in all the land. Her dazzling brown eyes, before which the stars in the night sky can't but blush, outshine every twinkling orb in heaven above. She must be found. She must be recovered. She must be returned to me, her father, at once. The trouble was, no one knew where to begin to look for the girl. The king, mistrustful of his soldiers' scruples and doubtful of his assistant's aptitude, turned to one of his sons, Cadmus, to accomplish the difficult task. Cadmus, being his son, was the only man in whom he could place his trust. And so, 
the king bade him, under the threat of exile, to find the stolen girl, his poor abducted daughter, and to return her to him in good health. That's right. The king threatened Cadmus, his own son, his own flesh and blood, with banishment or exile from the king of Tyre, his home, uh, the realm of which he was the rightful prince, should he fail to recover Europa. Harsh terms indeed to receive from one's own father, to whom, no matter the circumstance, as a good and faithful son, Cadmus was obliged to be dutiful. And so, with little direction and even less hope, Cadmus set out. He might have followed the hoof prints left behind in the sand, but, alas, the tide had long since washed them away. Cadmus was without any inkling or hint as to the whereabouts of his lost sister. A quick quiz. Pay attention. Who was Cadmus tasked with finding and escorting back to Tyre? That's right. Europa. And by whom was Europa stolen or abducted? Again, you've got it. Zeus, whose other names are Jupiter or Jove. Uncertain where to begin and overwhelmed by the vast number of places to which he could go, Cadmus ended up roaming the whole wide world. From Tyre, his home, he went south to Egypt, down whose meandering, curving, snake-like Nile River he sailed his boat. No luck. His sister wasn't there. He then departed that ancient land of sphinxes and pharaohs and went on to Spain, through whose narrow streets and plunging valleys he walked, always with an eye on the lookout for his sister. Again, no luck. In the land of Cervantes, she wasn't to be found. He then ventured to distant Hoboken, New Jersey, a mythical city into whose many artisan coffee shops and famous bakeries he cautiously poked his head. Strangers in the night, exchanging glances. Alas, Europa, perhaps conscious of her carbs and averse to the high taxes and chilly weather, wasn't there. Finally, Cadmus gave up. He had to admit defeat. He was, despite his best efforts, unable to find his lost sister. Of the grave consequences of his failure, Cadmus was all too aware. He would not be able to return to Tyre, his homeland, from which, without Europa, 
he was officially banned. Saddened by this fact, he visited the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, the priestess of the god from whom he hoped to get some advice. Delphi, a city in Greece, was said to be home of Apollo, god of archery, poetry, law, and order, by whom, if you'll recall from a prior episode, the beautiful young nymph Daphne was chased. Where was Apollo's home? That's right, Delphi. With some hesitation, Cadmus approached the oracle, before whom, as a sign of respect, he lowered himself and knelt. When bidden to rise, he posed the following question. Wise oracle, speaker of Apollo's truths, tell me, what new country should I make my home? Where should I go to begin this new phase of my life? To which the god replied, A cow will meet you in a lonely land. A plump, friendly cow that's never worked the field, dragged the plow, nor shouldered the yoke. With her as your guide, make your way to an unsettled land. Where she rests upon the grass, there you must found your city and call it Boeotia, which means land of the cow. As if on cue, a regal cow appeared before him, to whom Cadmus fixed his destiny. Cadmus followed the cow, and, as instructed by Apollo, founded his city where it lay in the grass. He called this place Thebes, and the region in which it was set was called Boeotia. As it turns out, though, this place, Thebes, upon which Cadmus hoped to raise a great nation, was home to a terrible monster. The oracle and uh, the cow, his real estate agents, failed to mention this fact, it seems. If only the property brothers were in charge of this and his accommodations. But first, before he knew this about Thebes, in order to demonstrate to the gods his gratitude or his thankfulness for his new home, Cadmus planned to sacrifice one of these real estate agents, the cow in this case, by whom he was led. To do this properly, he sent a few of his friends to look for pure spring water, without which the right just couldn't be performed. The purest spring from which the sacrificial water was to be gathered 
happened to stand next to a big, dark cave. Hidden in the cave dwelt a snake. But this was no ordinary snake. Its crest shone gleaming gold. Its eyes flashed fire. Its whole body was big with venom, and between its triple rows of teeth, that's right, triple rows of teeth, its three forked tongue flickered. In all the land, there wasn't a single monster as dreadful, a monster of whose presence, sadly, the men were completely ignorant. As soon as the men dipped their pails into the adjoining spring, the snake thrust from the cave its long, dark head and hissed, the most frightful hiss they'd ever heard. Their blood ran cold, their muscles froze, their hearts all pounded in their chests. The pails fell from their hands and, horror struck, they quaked in terror. Why were the men afraid? What was in that cave? Yes, a giant, terrible, dragon-like snake. Coil by scaly coil, the serpent, or snake, wound its way, and rearing up, curved in a giant arching bow, erect for more than half its length. It was as tall as a skyscraper, the biggest building you can even imagine. Then, in a flash, the dragon snake showed his poisonous fangs, against whose sharp, sword-like tips the helpless men had no protection. Like a hot knife through butter, the snake pierced each man with his fangs, through which streams of hot, acidic, burning venom flowed killing every last one. Two, three, four hours had passed since Cadmus sent his friends on their fateful mission. He was beginning to worry about them. Where could they be? He asked himself as he anxiously paced up and down in his garden. Surely it needn't take them this long to retrieve the holy water from a spring not even a mile away. Disquieted by, or worried about their long delay, he finally decided to go out and look for them. Unlike his friends, though, Cadmus armed himself. In addition to his snake-proof vest and mail of lion skin, he carried an iron-tipped javelin and lance with which to strike down an enemy, should one present himself along the way. No sooner had he set out to find his friends than he fell upon a horrible sight. Scattered around the spring, not very distant from the opening of an ominous-looking cave, all his friends were murdered. Each and every one 
with whom he passed his nights in merriment and his days in useful toil, was dead. Not a spark of life was to be detected among them as their corpses were strewn carelessly about. Cadmus was appalled. He was horrified by the sight. Then, out of the corner of his eye, from which manly tears for his slain friends were preparing to fall, he noticed the slithering motion of a massive form. Hovering over his friends, with its huge, slimy tongue soaked in gore and its venomous teeth ensanguined in red, was none other than the terrible snake. My faithful fallen friends, Cadmus cried. T'was no mortal enemy by whom you were slain. You were slaughtered by an indescribable beast, a dragon whose size far exceeds a great tower, whose fangs are sharper than the shaved point of a steel blade. Your deaths I'll now avenge or share. In your honor, I'll vanquish this dread snake or die trying. With that, he lifted a heavy rock above his head and, with all his might, hurled it at the snake. Normally, this would be enough to bash through a concrete wall and crush whoever was standing on the other side. But the scales of the giant snake were like steely armor off of which the rock just bounced. Crafted by Mars, god of war, they were nothing short of an impregnable reptilian shield, a suit of metal by which the monster was protected. Just then, Cadmus hoisted his great javelin. This, he thought to himself, can't fail to pierce the snake's impenetrable hide. If, however, it does, I join my comrades in death. With a grunt and a huge effort, our hero threw the javelin as hard as he could. It whizzed through the air and, without slowing down even a little, pierced the snake's scaly back. The serpent, insulted by the blow, thrust back his head and let out a deafening hiss. In agony, it twisted around to see the wound and, Upon finding it, tried to bite and remove the shaft by which his iron scales had been punctured. The snake was now irate, or very, very angry. To its natural rage, of which Cadmus's friends were the unlucky victims, new rage was added. In its throat, the Arteries swelled huge, its poison fangs were flecked with foam, its scales scraped rasping on the rocks, its breath 
like the black blast that stinks from holes of hell, befouled the fetid air. And then, in massive coils, it spiraled up and up and up, stretching itself to the measure of a giant tree. Uh-oh, thought Cadmus to himself. I've not killed, but only provoked this nasty beast. In a flurry of motion, the serpent then surged forward and attacked our valiant Cadmus, at whom, in a relentless assault, it shot forth its poisoned fangs. Luckily, our hero's vest was strong enough to resist their blow, and his lance quick and alert enough to deflect the venomous darts. The snake, unable to kill Cadmus, became frenzied and even wilder than before. Impatient to dispose of or do away with the hero once and for all, it lunged at Cadmus with its loathsome mouth wide agape. Cadmus, fatigued by the onslaught, realized just then that the snake had exposed its most sensitive and vulnerable part, its mouth, its throat, its rapacious gullet, into which, if he hoped to win this fight, he must at once drive his wearied lance. There was no time to lose. The snake was merely inches away from swallowing him whole when, with a mighty thrust, Cadmus delivered the decisive blow. He thrust his noble sword into the serpent's gaping throat, through which, with a little more effort, it was driven completely, stopping only when the blade struck a nearby oak tree to which the writhing snake was fatally pinned. The snake and the oak tree, to which it was equal in size, were nailed together. Its strong trunk, normally unbending, groaned beneath the final lashings of the writhing, scaly tail. At long last, and after much peril and effort, Cadmus was victorious. He had won. He dropped his lance and wiped his brow, upon which streams of salty sweat had gathered. He took a deep breath in and exhaled slowly, employed some mindfulness meditation and tried to recover himself. The rapidity, the fastness of his heartbeat hadn't yet slowed, nor had the adrenaline coursing through his throbbing veins diminished. His thoughts were enlivened by the trial out of which he'd just emerged, by the terrible snake he'd just vanquished, and, most painfully of all, by the friends and comrades whom he'd lost forever. Suddenly, a voice was heard, but, to Cadmus's surprise, no speaker from whom it might have come. Our hero thought, as a consequence of his exhaustion, he might be hearing things that weren't real. But no, the voice spoke again. Why, Cadmus? Why stare at the snake you've slain? 
you too shall be a snake and stared at. Who said that? Cadmus replied, before reflecting on the gravity of the statement. You too shall be a snake and stared at. In what way, he wondered. Did this mean he was about to die? Was someone soon to vanquish him, as he had just vanquished the snake? As Cadmus contemplated, or thought deeply about the meaning of this message, Athena, his guardian goddess, descended from the heavens above. She came to visit the bewildered hero, to whom she gave the following instructions. Cadmus, said she, go to the greenest field of Thebes, this verdant city of which you're the founder, and, once there, plow its soil. Plow your furrows deep and broad, and receive into them the bounty of my blessing. Once you carve them in the rich, fertile earth, plant the serpent's teeth. That's right. I want you to pluck those dagger-like fangs from the serpent's bloody mouth and scatter them like seeds in and across the fresh-tilled soil. In time, I assure you, they will yield an extraordinary harvest. Cadmus, awed by the presence of the goddess, dutifully obeyed. He plowed his furrows deep, across which he then scattered the snake's giant teeth. No sooner had he sown these unusual seeds than a rumbling was felt underfoot. The soil he'd just turned over, on which only a passing mist of rain had had time to fall, stirred and seemed as if it were, yes, alive. Indeed, the very earth atop which he stood trembled and quaked as though, on a whim, its dancing tectonic plates had shifted. Cadmus looked closely at the furrows across which he'd only just recently scattered the teeth and was shocked by what he saw. What do you think he saw? What might have sprung up from the planted snake's teeth? More snakes? More teeth? Tomatoes? Cadmus squinted and thought he saw not fruits, not vegetables, but the tip of a spear. But this couldn't be. Spears don't just grow out of the earth. He looked on and was, to his great shock, confirmed of his initial impression. By Jove, yes, yes, these most certainly are spears, he exclaimed, his voice filled with wonderment. Rising up after the spears, helmets soon emerged, 
across whose shiny crown feathery plumes of red and orange were majestically braided. Next, after the spears and helmets, shoulders, chests, and weapon-laden arms arose. Of the peculiar fruit of this seed, there was no longer any doubt. These were soldiers, but not just a few soldiers. Cadmus looked to his left and then to his right. He swiveled his head in every direction and was met with the same image, column after column of fearsome soldiers. The snake's teeth had become soldiers. These soldiers were called Spartoi, or the sown men, men who'd come from seeds. Disturbed by the sudden appearance of all these armed, intimidating men, Cadmus unsheathed his sword and readied himself to fight. After all, he had a new homeland to defend. No sooner had he done so than a warrior, the fiercest of the bunch, cried out to him, Cadmus, Cadmus, prince of Tyre, founder of Thebes, cultivator by whom we were given and grown to life, lay your arms down. In this, our civil strife, you should have no part. Cadmus, uncertain what to make of the scene, hesitantly complied. He lowered his sword and stepped back from the fruitful field, which had now become a field of battle. For the next hour, all the warriors, brothers, mind you, of the same seed-born, clashed in a deadly engagement. It was an all-out civil war, the first of its kind to which any city had borne witness. Normally, one kingdom would declare war and fight against another, from whom it hoped to take resources like gold and silver, or better yet, to claim large tracts of productive land. This, however, was different. This was an internal fight, like the kind in which you and your brother or sister occasionally engage. Heedless of their shared origin, uncaring for their new home, insensible to their common bond, and overcome with insatiable rage, the Spartoi, these brothers, fought one another to the death. Wound for wound, they all fell dead. They all fell dead, except for five. Five warriors, five brothers, survived the battle. Gazing upon the carnage of which, but a few moments ago they savagely partook, the brothers were speechless. They were embarrassed, ashamed, and hurt. How could they have treated one another as enemies? How could they have severed? With the sharp tips of their blood-stained spears, their mystic bonds of fraternal or brotherly love. 
they agreed, then and there, never to fight again. At least not with one another. Committed to peace, inspired by friendship, they followed Cadmus, their leader, with whom they proceeded to build up the city of Thebes, into which, once firmly established, properly ordered, and free from domestic strife, Cadmus introduced the alphabet. That's right. He brought literacy to Greece and, through Greece, to the rest of the world, and to you and to me. For this, especially on this channel, on which literacy, as you know, is very highly esteemed, we thank him. Thank you so much for joining me on this wonderful adventure. I hope you enjoyed the myth of Cadmus. In this episode, we learned about King Agnor's anguish, Prince Cadmus's mission, his luckless endeavor, his visit to Delphi, his founding of Thebes, his battle against the serpent, whose teeth he then planted in the soil, from which the Spartoi where the sown men sprang. The purpose of this channel is to entertain and enlighten the whole family, young and old, child and parent alike. With your support, we can achieve that noble end. We can rebuild an intelligent, curious, and lovable society one in which we are all eager to grow up. Please, subscribe to this channel, leave a five-star rating, and, most importantly, share it with your friends. Send it to them right now as a link in a text message, or on your WhatsApp app. Share it with your Facebook groups, your Instagram and Twitter followers, or your fellow parents at church, Dunkin' Donuts, Bikram Yoga, Sur La Table, SoulCycle, or wherever it is you spend your days. Let's raise, together, a generation of geniuses. Let's not forsake our myths and heroes, the great men and women by whom our extraordinary cultures built. Visit my sister podcasts, Finneran's Wake, and Numa, spelled P-N-E-U-M-A, for more adult and varied material. With that, farewell from Finneran's Wake for Kids.